1: Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to
2: supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
1: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
2: On trial for second-degree murder and attempted murder, Stacy Castor impassively watched the proceedings in an upstate courtroom. They were halfway through the trial's evidence presentations, but neither side had won over the jury just yet.
1: The previous day, Stacy's defense had completely shut down one of the prosecution's major arguments. They were feeling confident that they could carry on that momentum.
2: But perhaps they hadn't planned on the damning testimony provided by one of Stacy Castor's closest friends, Lynn Pulaski.
1: The district attorney knew they had a bombshell on their hands, something capable of destroying the jury's belief in Stacy's honesty.
2: Stacey's expression remained placid and unchanging as Pulaski began to speak. She told the court about how after the death of David Castor, Stacy had asked Lynn and her husband to help her make sure she was taken care of.
1: By forging witness signatures on a fake version of David Castor's will.
2: Soon, the whole courtroom knew that Stacy Castor had committed at least one crime to get what she wanted
1: and that she may have been capable of much, much worse.
2: Hi, I'm Claire.
1: And I'm Vanessa.
2: And this is Female Criminals. Today, we're going to continue our deep dive into the life of Stacey Castor and the terrifying series of poisonings that she committed.
1: We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five star review of female criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems simple, but it really helps us out.
2: And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Stacey Caster was a serial killer, active from 2000 to 2007 in Onondaga County, New York. Known for her use of antifreeze and the personal gain she stood to acquire from each victim, Stacey may have been involved in at least three murders and an attempted fourth.
1: In our last episode, we explored Stacey's involvement in the deaths of her first husband, her father, and the murder of her second husband.
2: Today, we'll take a look at Stacey's attempt to murder and frame her daughter and the ensuing investigation and trial for her crimes.
1: In August of 2005, David Castor was pronounced dead from suicide. According to studies conducted by Scott Bonn, a professor and criminologist at Drew University, criminals who settle into a pattern achieve a sense of excitement and confidence after each successful kill.
2: With no immediate charges against her, Stacy may have believed she had escaped notice, she had murdered her second husband, would inherit his assets through his will, and could live comfortably until such time as she decided to get married again.
1: By this third murder, Stacy's crimes had become more complex, but the results had become sloppy and threatened to expose her true motivations.
2: Comparing her first kill with her third, there do seem to be marked changes. The death of Stacey's first husband, Michael Wallace, five years earlier had been prolonged. It took months before he finally succumbed to the poison. With Wallace, Stacey hadn't yet settled on her methodology either. She dabbled in substances and even used small quantities of rat poison to test their effects.
1: By her next murders, Stacey learned how to cover her tracks and build an alibi to prevent suspicion from falling on her. Instead of risking the possibility of an autopsy on her father, she had him cremated.
2: And with her second husband, David Castor, she went to work on the day that she killed him with antifreeze and made sure to call his cell phone to establish her location.
1: Stacy was ready with her alibi and statement. She was able to relate a detailed timeline to the lead investigator on the case, Detective Dominic Spinelli, about her whereabouts over the weekend of August 22nd. She also helpfully provided a connection between David Castor's apparent suicide and his supposed suicide method of antifreeze. She claimed that she could trace it back to a documentary the two of them had watched recently about Lynn Turner.
2: Lynn Turner, the original antifreeze killer, was active from 1995 to 2001, and was responsible for the deaths of her husband and a subsequent boyfriend.
1: Stacy claimed that the Lynn Turner documentary they'd watched could have given David the idea to use antifreeze in his apparent suicide. This explanation didn't seem to satisfy detectives.
2: In the opinion of the investigators, everything was too perfect. Detective Spinelli later asserted that he couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong.
1: Keep in mind, this was almost immediately after David Castor's death. The full scope of Stacy's crimes hadn't even been realized yet.
2: Detective Spinelli refused to drop the case and decided to keep a close eye on her. He couldn't understand why a woman who had lost so much wasn't, in his opinion, reacting appropriately. He assumed that Stacy should be more distraught and frantic about the entire situation, instead of the eerie composure she displayed.
1: Reactions are often a basis for misconceptions. In criminal cases, for example, grief is often used as a standard for guilt. If someone doesn't appear to be in pain over a violent or shocking event that has occurred, it's often assumed that they are responsible for the act themselves.
2: According to witnesses of Stacy's reaction after each incident, Stacy always seemed to display a calm and collected demeanor. But this wasn't strong evidence. After all, there have been plenty of wrongful arrests and convictions based on how investigators thought suspects should feel or behave.
1: Before we dive into the psychology at play here, we just want to give a quick disclaimer.
2: Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
1: Scientific American reported on a series of grief studies by George A. Bonanno at Columbia University and concluded that, quote, Most people are resilient and do not become seriously depressed or distressed when someone close to them dies, end quote.
2: So Spinelli's hypothesis was wrong. Not everyone who loses someone close to them is going to react with big displays of grief. So he had no real reason to be suspicious of Stacy.
1: Well, to be fair, Bonanno's research focused on elderly couples, and it wasn't focused on people who had lost their spouse to suicide. People who lose their loved ones to suicide don't always share the same grief process as people whose loved ones died in other ways. A 2012 paper on suicide bereavement and complicated grief says that, quote, suicide survivors face unique challenges that can impede the normal grieving process, putting survivors at increased risk for developing complicated grief, concurrent depression, PTSD, and suicidal ideation, end quote.
2: So Spinelli's belief that Stacey should have been reacting differently to Castor's supposed suicide could have been justified then?
1: Well, no, I wouldn't say that either. What I mean to say is, with at least eight forms of grief dependent on an individual's unique situation, it shouldn't have been the basis for Spinelli's theories about Stacey's guilt.
2: But regardless of how the case should have been handled, that lack of outward grief was the reason Spinelli wiretapped Stacy's phones and set up cameras at the cemetery sometime in 2005. He had come to the conclusion that if Castor really felt anything towards her two late husbands, she would visit.
1: The glaring hole in his logic was that she could have visited for any number of reasons. A likely motive might have been to visit her victims.
2: Stacey made sure each of her victims were all buried in the same plot of land, right next to one another. She may have viewed this collection of victims as a set of trophies.
1: Generally speaking, we associate the collection of souvenirs or trophies with male serial killers, not female serial killers.
2: These trophies can sometimes range from an item belonging to a victim, to a photograph of the victim, to a body part from their victim.
1: So Stacy's collection of graves doesn't fit neatly into this category, but it does suggest that she may have felt some pleasure at seeing all of her victims in the same place. Trophies can provide a chance for criminals to remember or relive their crimes. Mark Griffiths, PhD, a psychologist with Nottingham Trent University, likens the need for trophies to a type of addiction.
2: But if she viewed these graves as her trophies, She was smart to have collected something so benign because the police were at the start of an exhaustive two-year inquiry into Stacey Castor.
1: The investigators focused on phone records, the turkey baster with David's DNA, a container of antifreeze completely devoid of the victim's prints and Spinelli's baseline suspicion that there was more to the story.
2: While we don't have access to the exact dates on which each step of the case occurred, we do know in which order the investigators chose to act.
1: Stacy's story, one of the key aspects of the case, was the first to fall apart. Stacy had claimed that she had made multiple calls to check in on David Castor.
2: But when they fact checked with the call logs, detectives discovered that only one call had ever been placed. This piece of information poked a hole in Stacy's narrative, which led the investigation deeper.
1: The next piece of evidence to be examined was the turkey baster with antifreeze and David Castor's DNA on the tip. On the surface, this appeared to be the tool with which David had committed suicide.
2: The brand new turkey baster had been found at the bottom of the trash, but the condition and location weren't the only strange things about this supposed methodology.
1: It was the idea of using a turkey baster at all. Why not just drink the antifreeze out of a glass? Using a turkey baster to drink antifreeze seems like it would be physically awkward.
2: Similarly, the ingestion of antifreeze guarantees a slow death. Had David Castor seen the documentary on Lynn Turner, he would have known the effects of the poison.
1: The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention lists poison as the third most common method among Americans. However, within the category of poison, sleeping pills are most commonly used to cause a victim to pass away in their sleep. So why choose antifreeze in the first place? The circumstances just didn't add up.
2: The glass next to David Castor's body, full to the brim with neon green antifreeze, was equally suspect there wasn't a single one of David's prints anywhere on it. There were, however, several prints that belonged to Stacy. She claimed that she had brought him the glass at some point, complicating her initial story, in which she was out of the house and had chosen to avoid her husband throughout the weekend. All of
1: these problems, issues that Stacy hadn't had to face after she murdered Michael Wallace and possibly her father, were due to one key difference in Stacey's evolving M.O.
2: Unlike Michael Wallace and Stacey's father, David Castor's death was not made to look like it had happened naturally. Instead, she had chosen to present it as suicide.
1: A death by suicide and a death by natural causes call for different sets of protocols. In the state of New York, for example, law enforcement is required to investigate a death if it appears to be suspicious, unusual, or unnatural. A death by natural causes wouldn't provide a reason, but a suicide is sometimes enough to qualify.
2: And autopsies for deaths that aren't believed to be suspicious, unusual, or unnatural aren't mandated. That meant that someone had to make the call to determine if an autopsy would be necessary.
1: Fortunately, the medical examiner decided to perform the autopsy and confirmed the presence of ethylene glycol in David's system. However, the forensics team stopped once David's death was ruled a confirmed suicide.
2: Meanwhile, as a quiet investigation into David Castor's death continued in the background, Life for Stacy settled back down as she turned to her robust social network.
1: Shortly after David Castor's death in 2005, Stacy went to her friends, Lynn and Paul Pulaski, in order to plead her case and ask their support in the days to come. The Pulaski's were more than willing to help Stacy through her trying time. So eager were they to prove their friendship that they became accomplices to fraud.
2: And within a year, Stacy began to date a man named Michael Oxner. Little information exists about Oxner and Stacy's relationship, but perhaps given the time and opportunity, Stacy might have repeated the cycle of murder.
1: According to psychologist and college professor Dr. Judith Willett, the best predictor of future behavior are built in habits. In Stacy's case, murder became an automatic response to specific stimuli. She established her life in a way that suited her, but something would always change. Somehow she would experience a loss of control, find a chance to get ahead or a mixture of both. Then she would strike as she had struck three times before.
2: And it was that predictability that did her in. In 2007, two years after David's death, the investigation came to a boiling point when Spinelli discovered that Stacy's first husband Michael Wallace, had also died under mysterious circumstances.
1: Remember, during December of 1999, Wallace's health had suddenly and steadily declined. By January of 2000, their 11-year-old daughter, Ashley, witnessed her father die. Stacy later denied Wallace's sister's request to have an autopsy performed. Wallace was pronounced dead of natural causes.
2: After uncovering this strange story, Spinelli felt that there were just too many coincidences and unexplained pieces of physical evidence. So he had Wallace's body exhumed for an autopsy. As a result, Stacy grew even more dangerous.
1: And so she struck again, this time at a different kind of victim, her daughter, Ashley. We'll return to our story in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be.
1: And now, let's continue our story.
2: It was September of 2007, and Stacy Castor, now 41, had little to no idea that her past was about to literally be unburied. Now, to exhume a body is no small or simple feat. It requires more than a light suspicion or gut feeling to achieve. When a law enforcement officer wishes to conduct further forensic analysis upon an interred body, they must build a case.
1: In this instance, Detective Spinelli and fellow investigator Price had to make an argument that cast reasonable suspicion on the circumstances of Michael Wallace's death. They also needed to establish the relevance of an exhumation to the ongoing investigation of Stacey Castor.
2: The crucial piece of evidence in building their case ended up being the turkey baster. It became the sole reason why investigators began to suspect that David Castor's death could have been a homicide.
1: None of the law enforcement officials could understand why that particular implement was used for a suicide. And neither, it turns out, could the judge who signed off on the exhumation and examination of Michael Wallace's body.
2: Federal law describes four common reasons for which a body might be unburied during a criminal investigation. These include incorrect identification of the corpse, overlooked trace evidence, incomplete wound analysis, or, in this instance, an incomplete toxicological study.
1: Investigators knew exactly what they were looking for — antifreeze. More specifically, ethylene glycol. As Spinelli and Price had predicted, they found trace amounts in Wallace's remains.
2: After detectives determined that both David Castor and Michael Wallace had died from ethylene glycol poisoning, Spinelli brought Stacy in for questioning on Friday, September 6th. It wasn't long before red flags went up. They asked whether Stacy knew what the deadly substance found in antifreeze was. She stunned the detectives by naming ethylene glycol.
1: The interview quickly devolved as Stacy was presented with an increasing amount of forensic evidence. That's when Stacy fumbled her answer in regards to the drink she poured for David Castor. She started to say antifreeze before quickly switching to cranberry juice.
2: As the interview itself was neither filmed or recorded, we have to take Spinelli's account at face value. His retelling was later backed up by fellow detective Valerie Brogan, who observed the event. However, it seems just as likely Stacy might have been caught off guard or even suffered a Freudian slip.
1: Not likely. Cognitive scientist Gary Dell, a professor of linguistics and psychology at the University of Illinois at Urbana, suggested that Freudian slips aren't usually about the subconscious acting out. Rather, they're usually due to the 30,000 or so words that the human vocabulary has access to at all times. Many words sound similar or are used similarly, and that can cause momentary slips. However, Stacy saying antifreeze instead of cranberry juice couldn't have been purely coincidental because the two words don't share enough syntactic similarities.
2: The interview drew to a close. All Stacy had to do was get up and leave.
1: But she began to spiral as she saw the evidence was stacked against her.
2: Stacy was trapped. She shut down and demanded a lawyer. The investigators were confident that they were on the right track.
1: Now Stacy needed to find a way out. Something or someone over whom she was able to exert a measure of control. She went to her confidant and eldest daughter, Ashley Wallace.
2: But investigators got to Ashley first. They stopped by Syracuse's Bryant and Stratton College to speak with Ashley on Wednesday, September 11, 2007. They informed her that Stacy was a person of interest in the deaths of both Ashley's father and stepfather. Even with the evidence that investigators had on Stacy, Ashley wasn't willing to entertain the possibility of her mother's guilt.
1: Stacey claimed for years that she and Ashley had become best friends when Wallace had begun to treat second daughter Bree like his princess. This absolute trust displayed by Ashley seems to back up those claims. However, remember that Stacy saw people as objects to manipulate. Ashley was about to learn what that meant.
2: Investigators mentioned that they had exhumed the body of Michael Wallace, Ashley's father, for further study. That same day, Ashley called her mother, understandably upset over the news that her father had been poisoned. Stacy
1: convinced Ashley to come over for a drink under the pretense of de-stressing after a difficult day. It would be a chance for mother and daughter to bond and lament about their problems.
2: The next day, September 12th, 2007, Ashley arrived at Stacy's home. Stacey mixed the drinks and handed one to Ashley, but something was off with Ashley's drink. It tasted horrible.
1: Ashley was only 20 at the time though, and her experience with alcohol had been limited. She wasn't about to question her mother's offer.
2: Ashley's drink made her sick to her stomach, and she eventually vomited. Stacy gave her a sleeping pill and sent her off to bed.
1: As seen with Michael Wallace, Stacy had opted to experiment with a variety of controlled substances.
2: The very next day, on September 13th, Stacy convinced Ashley to have another drink with her. This time, Stacy used a mixture of vodka, Sprite, and four types of prescription pills, including Ambien and Ritalin. When these two drugs are mixed with alcohol, they interact and create dangerous side effects. But it wasn't until the next day that another 911 call went out from Castor's home.
1: Sources disagree on the exact amount of time that it took for emergency services to be notified about Ashley's condition.
2: Analysis of Ashley's blood sample after the fact shows that she had actually gotten worse over time. This means that throughout the night, Stacy must have continued to poison Ashley as she slept in an attempt to hasten the process. Sources disagree as to the exact time and date of this incident, but our best estimate suggests that it wasn't until 17 hours after Ashley had been poisoned that Bree Wallace found her sister completely unresponsive in bed on September 14th. She quickly ran for Stacy, who called 911. My daughter is She sounds like there's
1: something in her throat, Ashley.
2: Oh my god!
0: Oh my god! Oh my god!
1: Stacy was sure that help would arrive too late.
2: And she was almost right. Dr. Daniel Olson, the emergency room doctor at University Hospital, noted that Ashley was literally minutes away from death before he treated her.
1: Soon after finding her sister, Bree discovered a note next to Ashley's bed where she hadn't noticed one before. In the typed message, Ashley claimed to have killed both her father and stepfather, apologized for her actions, and planned to take her own life as a form of penance.
2: Stacy snatched this note, a crucial piece of evidence during the trial, out of Bree's hands and gave it to the paramedics. This was a clear attempt to cover her tracks.
1: Detectives Spinelli and Pierce were notified immediately about the 911 call that came out of the Castor residence. They arrived minutes after the ambulance and began to scour the scene of the alleged attempted suicide for any clues about what had actually happened.
2: Stacy made sure the men received Ashley's confession. The note was badly misspelled and contained very little punctuation.
1: In it, Ashley appeared to admit to not only wanting to kill herself, but also being the responsible party in the murders of Michael Wallace and David Castor as well.
2: The note all but exonerated Stacy of the murders, going on and on about how it wasn't Stacy's fault and that Ashley alone was responsible for the crimes. It seemed like the perfect explanation.
1: And it would have been had Ashley died. Instead, to Stacy's surprise, Ashley woke up. She was set upon by investigators who asked question after question as they tried to get to the bottom of what had happened but she could barely remember enough to answer any of them.
2: Her confusion didn't puzzle investigators for long. Once Stacy had been removed from the room, Bree Wallace went over to her sister and detailed the contents of the note she had found. Ashley had no recollection of ever writing a note.
1: And it was unlikely that she ever had. Christine Stork, a local poison control expert, later determined that Ashley had been drugged with another cocktail of pharmaceuticals only two hours before she had been wheeled into the emergency room. Stacy had returned to her pattern of weakening her victim before going in for the kill.
2: Enough was enough. Detective Price went outside to find Stacy smoking a cigarette in front of the hospital. In Price's opinion, she didn't seem flustered or anxious. Instead, she seemed, as Detective Spinelli had described previously, calm and collected. He requested that she put out her cigarette and come with him.
1: It was the evening of September 14th when Stacy Castor was formally charged with the murder of her husband, David Castor.
2: After her arrest, Stacy was sent to Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Westchester County. This maximum security prison is one of New York's largest women's facilities and has been home to many infamous prisoners.
1: Near the end of 2008, Judge Fahey set the court date for Stacey Castor's trial, which was planned to commence nearly 16 months after Stacey's initial arrest.
2: Unlike most murder trials, this was not simply a case of whether Stacey Castor was guilty or not. It was clear that a crime had been committed, but it had to be confirmed whether Stacy or her eldest daughter Ashley was at fault for the deaths of Michael Wallace and David Castor. The case was mother versus daughter.
1: Each and every family member had a stake in the outcome of the case, and their testimonies were considered heavily subjective, with the family divided down the middle. It was Ashley and her sister Bree against Stacy and her mother, Judy Eaton.
2: The details of this trial can be overly long and repeat much of the information that we've already covered in detail. Vanessa and I will do our best to condense and present the most important moments from the trial.
1: On Monday, January 12, 2009, all interested parties had gathered to watch Stacy's trial. ABC News covered both the events of the trial as well as a retrospective examination of Stacy's crimes, which brought this case into the national limelight.
2: District Attorney William J. Fitzpatrick and Chief Assistant DA Christine Garvey led the prosecution. Fitzpatrick had been a successful prosecutor since the 1980s. He was responsible for the high-profile convictions of criminals Cynthia Pugh, Robin Murray, and Jeff Cahill.
1: On the other side of the aisle, a mostly unknown lawyer named Charles Keller led Stacey's defensive team. The first day of the three-week trial quickly set the tone of the proceedings.
2: Day one of any trial typically includes jury selection. In this case, over 140 potential jurors were interviewed. DA Fitzpatrick even offered to call up an additional 70 individuals should the need arise. According to an investigative report by Susan Solney of the New York Times, the number of jurors selected is usually very low, despite the fact that they must present themselves for multiple trials over a series of days. Close to 80% of all jurors are excused.
1: What makes this instance exceptional was that by the end of the day, the required 12 jurors had been seated. Judge Fahey, the presiding official, even called for another six jurors to be chosen as alternatives to be used if the trial went on for longer than anticipated.
2: Stringent measures were taken to ensure a fair trial. According to reports by Jim Kenyon, a reporter for CNY Central, Judge Fahey had the names of 160 potential witnesses read to the jurors to check for bias. On it, members of both the Wallace and Castor family were included.
1: Fortunately, jurors had been pre-screened and no replacements were needed. The 12-person jury consisted of 10 women and 2 men.
2: There must have been a reason for such an unbalanced gender ratio.
1: It's possible that both lawyers believed that the more female jurors in the box, the better. James Paul Lynn, a former defense attorney in Texas, used to stack his juries with women. He believed that women were often more compassionate than men in criminal cases, while men tend to be harder on defendants in general. Despite having no scientific data to back this up, many courtroom professionals hold these biases as a common belief and will often act in accordance with how they suspect a potential juror is predisposed to react.
2: If Lynn's observations hold water, D.A. Fitzpatrick might have hoped that this jury focused their attention on the crime committed against Ashley Wallace. While, opposingly, Keller probably believed he had hit the jackpot with such a one-sided group.
1: Neither can be assumed, but with a case of this importance, jury selection is often seen as the first indication of whether a defendant will be acquitted or convicted.
2: The second day of the trial included opening statements by each side. Proceedings included D.A. Fitzpatrick promising to prove that Stacy Castor was not only responsible for the death of her husband, David Castor, but the attempted murder of her own daughter, Ashley.
1: Keller countered by pointing the finger of blame squarely at Ashley, claiming that she was responsible for the entire chain of
2: events. Keller didn't have to wait long to prove his point. On day three of the trial, Ashley, now 21, took the stand. Her statement went as expected, with both her and D.A. Fitzpatrick blaming Stacy for the crimes committed. It was the cross-examination that laid doubt on an otherwise clear case.
1: In a surprise to both prosecution and Ashley, the defense produced a note Ashley had written to an ex-boyfriend, Mike Wazielski. In it, she professed to feeling depressed And had contemplated taking her own life.
2: Things were looking up for Stacey Castor and her defense team. But they wouldn't be celebrating for long.
1: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
0: Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush. Which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game, and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.
1: Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now, our story continues. It was January 14, 2009... The third day of the trial to determine whether 41 year old Stacy Castor or her daughter, 21 year old Ashley Wallace, had been responsible for two murders. And Stacy's defense had just produced evidence that Ashley may have had motive to write the suicide note attributed to her from the night she almost died of an overdose.
2: Which is believable. It's easy to forget that Ashley was only 11 when she witnessed her father's death. This traumatic event stayed with her. Once the past was unearthed by investigators, Ashley's state of mind was called into question.
1: The day concluded when D.A. Fitzpatrick had finished walking the jury through the chain of events we know to have begun back in December of 1999.
2: Days four and five were all about the physical evidence, from the turkey baster in the kitchen to the glass of antifreeze with Stacy's fingerprints, it all seemed to point at Stacey as the guilty party.
1: And before the fifth day of the trial ended, Bree Wallace, now 19, was called to the stand. The majority of her testimony centered around the weekend of David Castor's death and Ashley Wallace's alleged suicide attempt.
2: Bree remembered her mother using a key to get into David Castor's room the weekend of his death. Similarly, Brie explained how when she had gone to check in on Ashley... Stacy had stopped her from entering the room.
1: Bree's testimony was subjective at best. But Bree had the most unenviable position of anyone during the trial. Who was she supposed to support, her mother or her elder sister?
2: That seems like an impossible choice.
1: Not according to a Time magazine article on the science of siblings. Shared trauma, especially the death of a parent, can cause siblings to turn to one another for comfort and strength.
2: In any case, Bree's testimony was used as a credible source, but not seen as fact by the court. Day six of the trial began with the prosecution's motion to present evidence found on the household computer, on which DA Fitzpatrick claimed Stacy had written the fake suicide note. The defense immediately objected and submitted a motion for mistrial.
1: Keller asserted that the prosecution had withheld evidence from the defense This might have been the case if the findings had been exculpatory or able to exonerate the defendant, but since that was not the case, Judge Fahey denied the motion. The prosecution questioned computer expert Frank Bracken about what had been recovered from the computer. The original suicide note had been deleted, but Bracken was able to retrieve two fragmented computer files. These two files contained what appeared to be drafts of the eventual note.
2: According to Bracken, each note used significant differences in both the spelling and structure of the letter. Prompted by D.A. Fitzgerald, Bracken established that the notes had been written separately on September 11th and 12th, respectively. The timestamps also suggested that they were written at times during which Ashley was at school.
1: However, Keller asked if the computer needed a password in order to access it. It did not. Since that was the case, it was simple enough to establish that any person in the household has access to the computer and therefore had the ability to write the suicide note. Day six ended in a stalemate.
2: But day seven was favorable for the prosecution. Over the course of the morning, all attention was on David Castor's will. Two major witnesses were called to support the accusation that not only was the will in which Stacy Castor was named executrix of his estate illegitimate, but that it had been faked by Stacy and two accomplices.
1: The first to take the stand was David Wisby, a document expert from the Onondaga County Crime Lab. Wisby showed comparisons of David Castor's signature from both the will and other known samples, Wisby concluded that someone had simulated or forged David's signature on the will dated back to 2003. The very next witness corroborated this conclusion with her own testimony.
2: Lynn Pulaski, a longtime friend of Stacey's, testified that both she and her husband Paul had conspired to witness the signature of a fake will that Stacey provided. Pulaski went on to talk about how Stacy had contacted the couple in September of 2005, shortly after David Castor's death. She went on to admit that they had gone along with the idea and had chosen to date the document to August 13, 2003, the day after Stacy and David Castor were married.
1: The Pulaski suggested that Stacy had committed fraud, but more devastatingly, their testimony created reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury about Stacy Castor's honesty. This was a huge turning point in the trial.
2: On the eighth day of the trial, the defense went on the offensive. Keller called their first witness, Dr. John Roy, to the stand. A linguistics professor at Brooklyn College, Roy's job was to connect Ashley's writing to that found within the suicide note, through a process called authorial attribution.
1: Authorial attribution is a method of analysis that allows a researcher to ascertain the identity of a document's original writer. However, as D.A. Fitzpatrick made sure to point out, there is no error rate for the method. Therefore, it's hard to gauge accuracy.
2: Similarly, the prosecution went on to attack Roy's credibility. They noted to the jury that Dr. John Roy had only ever testified in a single court case and had never been published in any sort of forensic journal, the very subject of which he professed to be an expert.
1: It was the ninth day of the trial which brought out a key witness for the defense, Stacy's mother, Judy Eaton. Eaton made several accusations, including the claim that Ashley had confided that she hated her stepfather, David Castor, and that he had touched her inappropriately. Eaton was often silenced with an objection by D.A. Fitzpatrick. Judge Fahey then asked that the offending statements be struck from the record.
2: There seems to be a key difference between Bree's testimony when compared with Eaton's. Bree tended to focus on actions or events she had observed in the household. Eaton focused on pieces of conversations between only herself and Ashley.
1: When Keller asked to call Ashley back to the stand, Judge Fahey denied the motion. He asserted that if Ashley's relationships were of importance to the defense's case, then those questions should have already been asked.
2: It feels as though Eaton was saying what she thought the defense wanted her to say. Regardless of the potential uncertainty that might have been cast on such a relationship, the prosecution chose not to cross-examine Eaton.
1: DA Fitzpatrick, an emotional litigator prone to fits of shouting and grandstanding, probably believed the best tactic was to say nothing and let Eaton's unsubstantiated testimony speak for itself.
2: It was on the 12th day of the trial that Stacy Castor was due to take the stand. The night before, Keller made sure to grill her on every question she might be asked and even checked as to whether she wanted to go through with it. She decided that she had to do it. On January 30th, 2009, Stacy was given her chance to speak. This was where D.A. Fitzpatrick allowed himself to verbally attack every detail of Stacy's story. He did so often and loudly.
0: First, you would type in the suicide note to frame your daughter, weren't you? No, sir. And we caught you, didn't we, Mrs. Caster? No, you didn't. Just for that little phone call.
1: Stacy's lawyer objected regularly to the tactic, but it didn't stop the intense line of questioning from going on for an estimated two and a half hours before both prosecution and defense rested.
2: What can't be necessarily heard from her testimony is the placid demeanor Stacy displayed during the courtroom interrogation. She was in control of her emotions, whereas DA Fitzpatrick seemed to explode at every opportunity. Stacy taking the stand was a gamble, but she took the calculated risk.
1: And now the decision lay with the jury. On Monday, February 2nd, 2009, the jurors began their deliberations. What appeared to be an open and shut case for the prosecution lasted longer than anticipated.
2: It took the jurors three full days before they were ready to give a verdict. On Thursday, February 5th, 2009, Judge Fahey ordered the verdict to be read.
1: On the count of murder in the second degree, Stacy was found guilty. On the count of attempted murder in the second degree, Stacy was also found guilty. As the person for the jury finished reading, both Ashley and her sister Bree cried in relief at their mother's sentencing. Meanwhile, Stacy sat stoically in her chair and showed no sign of anger, despair, or remorse for her actions.
2: A month later, on March 5th, Judge Fahey sentenced Stacy to 51 years behind bars for her crimes and added his own personal thoughts on the matter.
0: You know, in my 34 years in the criminal justice system, I've seen murderers of every variety and stripe. But well, I have to say, Mrs. Castor, you are in a class by yourself.
2: The woman that had disrupted Onondaga County, New York, with her heinous crimes, was locked away with little hope of winning any appeals. The nearly $300,000 estate she had gained through a forged will was forfeited to David Castor's son from a previous marriage.
1: And the rest of the country forgot about Stacy Castor until her death in 2016.
2: Sometime in the early morning of June 11th of that year, Stacy Castor's heart gave out, and she died in her cell. Only 48 at the time, that day signaled the end of a chapter detailing the life and misdeeds of a woman who became one of America's most infamous female criminals.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals.
2: If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com.
1: If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
2: It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Thanks for listening.
1: Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Edward Hamill and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.